So there's ways that stations can think like, you know, how do we involve the community in our storytelling, whether it's, you know, we're doing a story on veterans. We're looking for local veterans. Do you know of any? If somebody responds and says, this is a veteran that I know that you should interview, they're helping your reporting process. And that should be seen as a valuable contribution to your station. The biggest nightmare for many public media membership directors goes like this. Hold a pledge drive, offer the tote bag, wait for the phone calls, and silence. No one buys what you're selling. Melody Joy Kramer is a former NPR journalist. As a recent Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, she came up with some ideas of what public media can do to make membership more appealing. She shared those with Emily Kopp and me on this week's It's All Journalism podcast. Enjoy. research project that I started was to think, what could public media membership look like if we thought about ways that people could become members without donating money? So the traditional model of public media membership is you donate um, during a pledge drive or you donate online a certain amount to your station and you become a member. And I started to think about, well, what does that membership mean? And I talked to a lot of people um, and um looked at that and I thought about what could public media membership look like if people could donate story ideas or people could donate code or people could help a station out with events or if people could become more involved in their station through activities and still receive the benefits of membership. And what does that look like both for the station and for the individual? So what's the health of public media membership nowadays? I mean, considering that people are bombarded with news from every corner, has it decreased over the years? So there was a report um, one or two years ago that said that public media membership is declining and that the number of people pledging during pledge drives is declining and that the number of people who are sustaining members, which means they donate every year through a credit card um, cyclically, that's increasing. Um, But public media membership directors are fearful about the health of public media membership, in part because so much of their budget is determined by membership. So I think 36 percent of the budget um, is through membership donations. Um, It's the highest amount out of any kind of funding that public media receives through individual donors. Um, And a lot of that is through traditional radio. So people who are listening to the pledge drive in their car. And what concerns me is that. 50% of cars um, within five years will have internet-enabled radio in the car. And by 2025, that'll be 100% of cars. So people who typically went to uh, their NPR member station as their default for, like, good, high-quality radio will suddenly have 10,000 choices in the car, and that won't necessarily be the default. So unless public radio member stations can um, articulate the value of why it's important to give and why it's important to be um, value this kind of trusted news source. Um, I'm really concerned about what will happen when people just have so many other options and that is no longer the default. So is there um, a receptiveness to trying to find these new ways or, or are they more interested in trying to go with sort of what's sustained them up to this point, try to increase membership donations, endowments and things like that? So th- there's hundreds of stations and, You can't really say like there's a one size fits all solution. And I've talked to dozens of stations and some people say, you know, our sustainers are what is our have most of our budget and we can't 
like not think about sustainers. And and I've always said from the beginning of this project, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm trying to add to the wheel so that when we're thinking about younger donors or we're thinking about people who are not yet in the public media uh, membership circle, that they can we can think of ways to recruit them in and to make them value public media. So um, a lot of stations that I talk to are very interested in getting the public involved in different ways um, and, and were happy to speak to me. Um, I've had some pushback, and the pushback that I've received is mainly um, staffing. So if we were to bring in volunteers to do this, we don't have enough people on staff to help them. And um, the other pushback that I've received is, you know, are, are you trying to reinvent what membership looks like and, and get rid of the existing structure? I'm not. I, people have to continue donating money to support public radio, and I'm not suggesting that that completely goes away. I'm suggesting that we can think of donating money as potentially like the last step in a series of events that makes people feel closer to a station or more invested in the future of a station. To step back for a moment, what do you think the value of a given public radio station or public TV station is nowadays to people? I mean, what would make them want to give money to it? So I think of it in terms of non-commercial media versus commercial media. And in non-commercial media, you can report on things and not have to worry about um, advertisers. I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, there's a reporter for NPR whose name is Howard Berkus, and he he covers mining in the United States. And Howard's reporting has changed um, laws in the United States um, based on his reporting. And his reports are never um, – they're, they're about mining in West Virginia, and they're not big traffic getters on the web. Um you know, they're they're not like a sexy topic, and they the, wouldn't naturally find a lot of commercial advertisers, right? And and they're they're it's really important to report on mining, and it's really important to to stay on, you know, to continually report on mining. But when we put Howard's stories up on the NPR website, Howard's stories were never in the top twenty. And if you're thinking about advertising revenue and you're thinking about you know ways to increase traffic. It would not be the continuous mining reports that Howard does, but they're they're necessary and they're needed. And I I can list dozens of projects that are like that. And and you know, public media is is a public service. It, it is available to everybody. Um, it's designed to educate and inform. Part of NPR's original mission statement was that we don't treat uh, the listeners as consumers. We're not marketing to them. And so it's just a different way of thinking about what we report, how we report, and how we connect with the public. So how are some of the people um, participating in, in, in some of the ideas that you suggested, like through volunteering or uh, of the, their time or things like that? The report that I just wrote suggested that people could become members of their local member station through donating um, tagging archives or through donating code or through helping out with events or through suggesting story ideas. And I have two stations who are currently piloting the project one is in Louisville, Kentucky, and there are 64 people who are hardcore volunteers at the Louisville Public Radio Station who have never become financial donors to the station, and they just received membership because they invest their time, they're giving back in a way, and the station has made them members for the next year, and we're going to track those people. And here in Washington, D.C., WAMU uh, worked with a local coding chapter called Code for D.C., and those are people who are um, they call themselves civic hackers. So um, they have day jobs and they are primarily developers and designers. And in the evenings, they volunteer for different nonprofits or local government services in D.C. 
and they offer their time and their skill as developers and designers. So last election day, WAMU worked with these people to create an election map for their website, which was really awesome. It was something that WAMU didn't have the staff to complete on their own. Um, It was seen by many more people, and it got these developers and designers invested in the public radio station in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have been. And they're going to continue to work with these people throughout the upcoming election cycle, and they're going to give them membership in return. So does does membership, is it really going to address some of the financial concerns going forward? I mean, I, the, the the example you gave, I mean, maybe WAMU may not have created that map, but they had somebody came, come in and volunteer and create that map. So that's almost like an add-on. It's not necessarily them replacing some service just as an example of what what you gave, that they may have already invested financially in. So there has been research out of the Stanford Social um, Innovation, or I'm I'm blanking on the name, but um, Stanford basically does research in philanthropy. And people who donate time are more likely to give money in the future. So if you can create some kind of invested interest with a body of people at some point in the future when they're thinking about ways to divvy up their own investments and, and donate, they're thinking of the places where they you know, had a good experience, met other people like them. The civic hacking example is particularly good because in code for DC chapter or the code for New York City chapter, there's brigades all over the country. Um, The reason people come out and do that is they meet other people like themselves. So it's a social activity for people who code or design to really give back to their community in a way. And also like the... You know, that website might be able to get underwriting. There there are other opportunities to um, have revenue attached to what people are doing that's not just tied to their financial donations. At NPR, you worked a lot on audience engagement and social media, things like that. How do you see the stations able to engage people and actually change the journalism. You just mentioned one project that WAMU here in D.C. is doing, but how do you see the the public at large having more of an influence on the journalism itself? So a lot of stations have worked on projects that are similar to the one that WAMU did. Um, I'll just talk about a couple of them that might be of interest. Um, KPCC in Southern California, um, in their last election cycle, which was for a local municipal primary election for their mayor, which, as you know, is like not a sexy topic. And it's really, really hard to convey that in an interesting way. Um, and they were they were brainstorming about ways to cover that election cycle. And somebody in the office said, let's just find somebody who isn't planning to vote and let's try to make him vote. And they found this guy named Al, who was a chef in Los Angeles. And their entire on-air and online campaign were, were designed to make Al vote. So in the first story, they introduced Al. In the second story, Al met the candidates. In the third story, Al went to a candidate's forum. And they asked the audience to come up with reasons that Al should vote. So they got the audience invested both in the process of storytelling. So they asked the audience for ideas for how to tell the story to Al and why it's important to vote and talk about different things that have to do with this local election. And then they got the audience invested in the outcome. So the audience wanted to hear whether or not Al voted. And Al eventually did vote, which was great. Um, but their campaign was hashtag Make Al Care. And the mayor of Los Angeles even recorded a video on YouTube um, with the hashtag Make Al Care. So it, it was a story that started out in the studio. It involved the audience in asking them to think about ways to tell this story. And then it, it 
It also got the audience to become ambassadors for the story and want to share it with others. We actually spoke with Krista Muller, the managing editor of KPCC, about Make Al Care. So if anybody's interested, they can go back and listen to that podcast. Yeah, that was a fun podcast. So another one is is WILL in Southern Illinois. Uh, They have 7th and 8th graders make a PBS documentary every year. So... It's really neat. They they pick a topic, they report on the story, they edit the story, they produce the story. The story airs on their local PBS station. Not only are they introducing these 12 and 13-year-olds to what public media is at a very young age, um, a lot of them have chosen to go into media as a result. A lot of them are more invested in their local community as a result. Their parents are then more invested in the future of the station as a result. So there's ways that stations can think like you know, how do we involve the community in our storytelling, whether it's, you know, we're doing a story on veterans, we're looking for local veterans, do you know of any? If somebody responds and says, this is a veteran that I know that you should interview, they're helping your reporting process. And that should be seen as a valuable contribution to your station. This is all under the, the umbrella of audience audience engagement, something that, that a lot of newsrooms are, are coming to grips with in, in, in sort of our new digital reality, where it used to be our, our engagement was we would interview people and maybe they would write us a letter, and that was pretty much it. Now that everybody has is more interested in this sort of dialogue between the community and, and journalism, you know, any opportunity to sort of build those bridges, I think, helps the, the, the quality of the newsroom. Melody, what is your vision for integration? Because a lot of these things that you mentioned make Alcare fabulous projects, but not the core of what stations do in producing the daily news. Would you like to see, and do you actually think it's practical to see audience engagement and story creation on a daily basis, like determining what the news agenda is for that public radio station? I think that there are ways to think about including the public in every stage of storytelling and the small steps that we can take to start to think about that, um, you know, will help eventually get to something that looks like that. But I don't think that that's like the vision um, right off the ground. But as I suggest in the report, like pick and choose which of these things work for your station and it's not one size fits all. Um, But I, I, I do think that getting people to think about story ideas, think about questions they have, you know, there's a section of Reddit called explain it like I'm five, which is, questions that people have oftentimes about the news um, and they ask people to break it down because they don't understand it. And I always told my beat reporters at NPR, go into that section on Reddit, look up your beat and see what questions people have. So when you're doing a story, you can integrate those questions into your reporting. So you're answering the questions that people have and want to know. And that would be an easy way of including people in the daily news reporting without bringing them into the newsroom and having them sit there and say this story versus this story. I still deeply believe in journalists. I think that, you know, we can edit. We know the value of something that's newsworthy. Um, You don't want to replace the people in your newsroom with people at home. That would make stations more like YouTube. But what you can do is say on YouTube, what is the really good science report that somebody's doing? And can we elevate that and help distribute that out to a wider audience? Where are you hoping this will go? Are you you hoping that um, uh, public radio stations, public media stations, they're going to want to pick up on this? Well, a lot of them already are, and a lot of them are doing a lot of neat audience engagement things. One thing that I've um, just found through doing a lot of research and talking with them is they're not really sharing this stuff with each other. So if a KPCC does a a make-out care, how does every other public radio station in the country know that and could potentially localize that so that they don't have to start from scratch? What I'm seeing a lot of stations do is, especially with code, code is really expensive to write. Code is much less expensive to adapt. 
So instead of reinventing the wheel 400 times, why aren't we sharing our code and then adapting it for each local market? Or why are we not sharing these kinds of success stories that work and then adapting it to local markets? Yeah. And one of the things I like about uh, this report that you've done and sort of our discussion here is this is sort of new thinking, a new a new approach, a coder's um, perspective on, on solving, trying to solve this problem. Um, some of the things that you mentioned there, I know that you talk about like Wikipedia or uh, where groups can come in, as you said, code and, and contribute in new ways and their expertise to sort of enrich what's going on in the public media. So I interviewed somebody who is a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op, which is a food co-op in Brooklyn, New York. And apparently it's the biggest food co-op in the country. So people pay and they, they're a member of their grocery store. And then I guess they shop at this place in Brooklyn. And this guy was saying that every member of the co-op had to contribute a certain number of hours per month. And most people bag groceries or, they, you know, they work the cash register. And he went to the co-op and he said, I'm a... Um, uh, a UX designer for the New York Times, and your website is terrible, and <laughs> I would like to use my hours to help you think about your website. And they said, great. And he got a team of like 20 people together, and their contribution to their food co-op was redoing the food co-op's website. And those, you know, they got brought in photographers, they brought in writers, they brought in a lot of people who just said, you know, even testing a website is very meaningful. So people who are not web developers or designers you need users to test what you're building, and people who are able to test that are giving valuable contributions. Um, and so they were able to bring in like dozens of people into this process, make them feel invested in the outcome, and then make something that helps the co-op move forward. So it's thinking like, what what does that look like in public media? What would that look like in a news organization? Um, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's it's a different project. But the more that you can include the audience in the process. The more they trust you, the more invested they are in the outcome, and the more they may have expertise that you don't have. And for journalists, basically what you're saying is that these legacy media broadcast, um, it's a way for them to use the tools of the digital age in a way that they hadn't thought of before. Because there's so much data out there when you're talking about the technology and people, what they're saying on Twitter or Reddit, or um, if they're coming to you for um, with, with offers of help for coding it's a question of how do you synthesize that and, and use it and stay on your mission. Yeah, and, and how do you prioritize that? And how do you even take um, things that coders do? Like one of the things that people who code do is they often um, iterate. So so they'll build something and it, it'll be like a prototype or it won't be the final project. And, and they'll say, what, what can we build in two weeks that moves this process forward and allows us to answer a question and allows us to pose that question to our audience, which in their case would be the users of their website or their product. And see what we have to do from here. So it, it's an iterative, agile process of thinking about story development, of thinking about product development, of thinking about, how, you know, are we telling the right stories that people want to hear? Are we answering the right questions? You know, a lot of when I've I've worked in newsrooms and I've, I've worked in daily um, for shows that put out a daily show. And, and it's really, really hard to come up with new ideas when you're working in that environment because you have to put out your content every day and the radio doesn't stop. Um, so how do you take a step back and say, like, are we answering the questions that our public wants to hear? Are, are we relying too much on, on just what we've always done because it's easier or because that's the way we've always done things? A lot of people have said to me, why don't you just create a startup? And, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah, you know, sell out now. Yeah, well, and, and, and in a lot of other fields, you could get four people together and say, 
we're just going to start this from scratch. We're agile. We're small. We can just whip this up on our own. That's not the way public media works. And that's not the way we should want public media to work. And, and you know, working within the existing structure is difficult and challenging in many ways, but it means thinking about how do you move the needle forward? How do you get somebody who's a one to a two? Or how do you get somebody who's a seven to an eight? Instead of thinking all of these ones have to become tens. It fits into the the, the public media mission that it's about serving the community. But but in actuality, you're, you're involving the community. So sort of find out what they're really interested in and bringing them into your process. Public radio for many years have, has thought of itself as a broadcaster. And I'd rather we think of ourselves as distributors or facilitators. So how do we even bring people into our space? Like, I think public radio stations should be seen as public spaces, much like the way libraries are. So libraries have had to go through an interesting um, transition, too, in that, you know, people aren't necessarily checking out books out of the D.C. public library. But what D.C. has done that's been really great is they have events there. They have a 3D printer. You can take classes there. There are reasons to enter their space and understand the value of a library that have nothing to do with their original purpose. Yeah, this is the new technology and, and, and the shift away from the sort of the old structures is is sort of forcing people to come up with redefining what they are and how to how the, how they still serve the the audience of the community that they originally did, but maybe in different ways. And I think that's easier for public media than commercial media. Because public media is a public service. So if we think of our space or what we're doing as a public service, I've suggested that we think even about putting public media headlines on buses or putting them at bus stops or thinking about how do we integrate public media into public space. I applied for a night grant a couple of years ago. I didn't get it. But I wanted to put audio cones at bus stops and play Sesame Street. Because if you're standing at a bus stop with your three-year-old, like, wouldn't that be the perfect time for them to listen to Sesame Street? You know... Public media doesn't have to live within a studio. Like we're sitting in a studio right now and public media can can think about its role serving the public in different ways. And and the best example of that is something libraries have done. Have either of you seen the Little Free Library? Outside of people's homes. You have yeah. a friend who does that. Yeah. So the Little Free Library is basically like anybody can become a library and you put up this little wooden structure in front of your home and you give away books. And it's putting the library into public space. It's making people value a library, even though your library in your yard might not be connected with the D.C. Public Library. It still gets people to think about the value of a library. What would a public media station look like if it were in a food cart? Well, we need to bring Cookie Monster to the masses. I think that's, that would be a great thing yeah. to do. Yeah. One other thing I'll say about that is when I talk to a lot of people and I interviewed hundreds of people who either listen to public media and donate or you know, listen to podcasts, but not public media, um, would like to become more invested in their community, would like to meet other people like them, don't go to bars, are not religious, don't really have a place to go to, to meet other people without going online. Um, and the public media station could really serve as that purpose. On OkCupid, which is an online dating site, 40,000 people list Terry Gross as an interest in their profile. What they're saying is like, public radio says something about me. My Interest in public radio says that I'm an intelligent person who cares about the world and reads the news. And they want to meet other people like them. That's why they put that in their dating profile. Other news organizations are not listed in the profile nearly as much as public radio. Yeah, Fox News. So going forward, you mentioned that there are two stations that are piloting some of your ideas. Other stations that aren't quite sure. They don't know if they have the staffing or, or whatever for it. So just give us sort of a layout of what's next and how you're going to be evaluating 
the success of these uh, experiments that you're doing. So I've said to people all along, please don't wait for me. You know, if, if you have an idea, please run with it. I am not like standing on a little soapbox and saying I have to manage this. You have to bring me in as a consultant like that is not the way to go. Um, there are people across public media who have great ideas who are running with them. I'll give you one example. In Nashville, there's an enterprise reporter named Emily Siner. She's like 24 or 25. And she came up with the idea that she wanted to start a podcast, but she also wanted to start an event series and a newsletter. And so she brings in interesting people from Nashville, puts them on a stage, interviews them in front of an audience. That's then packaged as a podcast and pumped out as a newsletter. So the station is getting email addresses of people who sit for those lectures who have never been inside a public media station in their lives, who are interested in what Emily's doing. She's bringing in a new, younger audience. And that's super, super smart. My goal over the next several months is to raise up people like Emily and connect Emily's ideas so that other public radio stations know what Emily's doing and can do that if they would like to, um, and also connect the audience uh, with public radio stations. So I'm working with several software developers, and we're creating something that we call Media Public, um, and it will be a platform that public radio stations can talk about what they're doing and doing well, and it will be an easy way for stations to say, these are the things that we need help with, like we're, we have an event coming up, we need volunteers, we have a story on veterans coming up, we're looking for veterans, uh, we need help with our new mobile app, we're looking for people who could test or code it. People can sign up to help them, and then the station gets their email address and could potentially make them members. So uh, can we talk about your pointer column? Yeah. Okay, so you read a weekly column uh, for Pointer about uh, kind of what we're talking about, journalism. Yeah, I, I write about um, people who are doing cool things in the news industry who don't live in Washington, New York, or San Francisco. Okay, and, and, and so <laughs> so by having a weekly column, that would one would assume that there are a lot of cool people doing cool stuff around the country. Oh, yeah, and you know what? Like, I worked in smaller newsrooms, and when I worked in smaller newsrooms, I felt really isolated because I wasn't... I wasn't somebody who could attend conferences because if I wasn't at my station, I wasn't doing my job. And that meant my job wasn't getting done because I was at a very small station. And there are hundreds of people in small newsrooms across the country who can't attend conferences, who have really good ideas, who want to bounce them off other people, and who aren't necessarily finding the support within their own newsrooms. So I try to find those people and surface their ideas just so other people know that they're not alone. Like One of the projects that I highlighted, which was so easy, anybody could do this, um, there's a chat program called Slack. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> we're familiar with Slack. Yeah. And anybody can make a Slack room. And I found these people who um, they're each the digital producer in their newspaper and they have a Slack channel together and they all work in different newspapers. And that way, if one of them has an idea, they can bounce it off the other people in their chat room. It's essentially like an ongoing conference. Um, if they find something new online, they share it with the other people in their chat room. So it's just a way for them to not feel as isolated during their day job. And when I worked in smaller newsrooms, I often felt isolated. So I, I try to alleviate that for other people. Yeah. And it's something, the feedback that we get about the podcast, that, that there are people who are um, who want to innovate, who have ideas that they want to implement. They're not sure maybe how to do it or they're receptive to the to, to new ideas. And, and once they get something, that, that it gets them more excited about what they can accomplish uh, in, in their newsroom to better serve uh, the public and do their job. You know, I... It, so um, there are ways to surface good ideas in newsrooms, and, and a lot of newsrooms that I've worked in have you know, given time to think about new ideas. But then you need to follow through and say, if somebody has a good idea, like maybe we have a small internal fellowship at our newsroom that we give them a month of time and we give them 
we prioritize this and, and we help them get it off the ground. Or even like you can pilot things with a Google form or a newsletter, like piloting things to see if they work doesn't cost any money. I used to pilot things all the time at NPR with either a Google form or a tiny letter, which are both free. One question I had, maybe you just answered it, but you're trying to tell the stories of people who are isolated, as you said. So how do you find those stories in the first place? How do you find the people who aren't necessarily reaching out and very connected with the journalism industry at large? So I'm, I use Twitter as kind of my um, catch-all listening device and my way to broadcast what I'm thinking. Um, and I think that I've built up a large enough and diverse enough audience where if I ask a question, people point me to other people. Um, and then I just kind of go down a rabbit hole and I, I'll say like, you know, this is great. Tell me three other people in your newsroom who I should talk to. Um, I'm talking with somebody from an Oklahoma newsroom this week. Like, I, I don't care what your job title is. I don't care how high up you are on the food chain of your newsroom. Like, I would rather you're not very high up on the um, the food chain of your newsroom. Um, I think it's just word of mouth at this point, but it was difficult initially, and I was mainly relying on people that I knew or one degree removed, uh, but now I've been writing the column for about six months, and people are reaching out to me, um, and I you know, I respond to everybody, and uh, Twitter is a really good way to do that because uh, people don't expect a lengthy reply because you, you don't have <laughs> the ability to give them a lengthy reply, so um, I find email kind of overwhelming. Um, when I was doing my project, I was receiving upwards of a thousand emails a day from people, which is insane. Um, so I would much rather correspond over Twitter. Yeah, and actually, that's how we kind of hooked up. Is that I saw that you were on a plane, I think, going to New York, and you're asking people to send you phrases that you would do haikus on. Yeah, and I mean, I, and I sent you a couple of <laughs> phrases, and that's how to sort of this this got where we got where we are now. Yeah, I, I use Twitter as my sounding board. You know, I, I, I'll i ask questions on Twitter. I'll, I'll say what I don't know that people respond on Twitter. Like this week, I was trying to write a guide for people to write better documentation for their code um, as part of my day job. Huh. And I wanted to make sure that I was covering all of my bases. So I tweeted out, like, what does good documentation look like to you? And got dozens of responses. And then I can go through them and say, like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. It's, it's a way for me to connect with the audience to make sure I'm covering all of my bases, too. Yeah, I, I don't think people use Twitter as often as well enough as they should to, 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 to the, the dialogue aspect of it, trying to solicit. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be Twitter. Like, I always told my NPR reporters, like, find the platform that works for you. I don't want you everywhere. I would like you somewhere um, just because it helps you to bounce ideas off of people. And if you're extremely busy, like, you don't need to be the social media prince of, of Twitter or Facebook. Like, I did not want our mining correspondent to spend his day on Twitter. That would be a really poor use of his time. But knowing how to use it as a reporting tool and thinking, like, where is the audience that I'm trying to serve and how do I better connect with them is always a question that we should be thinking. Whether it's Twitter, a newsletter, um, setting up a lemonade stand and telling people information, I have often said to stations, like, there are tourist bureaus in every single city. Why can't I find out information about my local public radio station when going to a tourist bureau? You know, one of the things that I keep thinking about is when people move, they don't have media habits. So it's it's kind of like starting from scratch. And public radio stations, you know, there could be like a welcome package on the website. And, and this is something that actually I'm moving to Chapel Hill in a month. And I tweeted at the station and said, hey, I'm moving to Chapel Hill. Do you have any like stories that I should listen to before I get there? And they made a website called... If you're moving to North Carolina, here are five stories you should listen to. 
that's amazing. Like that's the kind of things that we can be doing with our existing material to serve our public better. Yeah, you know, and people don't people just aren't thinking. It's until somebody suggests something to them or is like, hey, that's a really good idea. Why don't we do that? Yeah, and I think that part of the way that I work and part of what I love doing about my job is I don't hold ownership over any of these ideas. So I just like putting them out in the world. I like when people experiment with them. I continually say to people, please don't hire me. Like, you know, I, I would rather you just run with it and do it. Like, you don't need to bring in a consultant to try out these things. And you don't need to bring in a consultant who confirms what the employees that you have are already saying. Um, something that has pained me over the years is saying something at a newsroom and then watching a consultant come in and get paid a lot of money to repeat the same thing and then that's the person that people listen to. Like, that's happening in lots of newsrooms. I talk to lots of young journalists who have great ideas who aren't necessarily, who can't get them heard. And then they, you know, people go to a conference and, and buddy around with people and, and that's how ideas get through. Yeah. Going back to National Public Radio for a minute, um, you used to work at NPR. It's a nationwide network. How well is it doing at helping these local stations that you've been focusing on innovate, bring in new members? Isn't that part of NPR's responsibility? Yeah, and they, they do have a digital services team, and they did just start this collaborative coverage project. Um, when I worked on the social team, we had a blog, which NPR is still running, called The Social Sandbox. And initially, The Sandbox was designed as an internal newsletter for NPR employees so that I could highlight the good work they were doing to show to their managers that we should value digital. Um, and that, you know, I wanted to highlight my coworkers who weren't necessarily the people who were constantly applauded publicly, but they were doing really good work. And eventually we made the newsletter public on a Tumblr and for stations to read, and we started highlighting the work that stations were doing as well. Um, I think NPR is thinking about that more. I know that the Collaborative Coverage Project is launched, and they're working closely with stations on that. Um, I think that it's also just not – I think there need to be other people working on this besides NPR proper itself. Um, so, uh, there, you know, the more people who are thinking about this and the more fishes who are, like, swimming in this direction, it, it's for the betterment of public media. Um, and, and this is true for public media and a lot of industries. Like, we – when I was doing this project of membership, I kept hearing from stations, um, I don't want to share because we're competing for grants, or I don't want to share because I'm competing with other stations. And that's just going to kill us. Like, we are here to serve the public. Uh, the public doesn't necessarily know which geographic location it's in or what it's listening to. The public doesn't necessarily think about the radio that it's listening to in terms of geography. Um, so we need to think about other structures for the way to um, think about the station, which is very tied to geography right now. And if, if people are listening to um, public radio online or in their car through a podcast, they're not necessarily attributing that to their local station, which means the local station therefore needs to serve another role in, in the public, either through becoming a public space or becoming an event space or, or you know, how, how do you get people to think about the space that you occupy? occupying their community if they can listen to public radio from anywhere. So are these strategies that can be used uh, in a commercial media standpoint, do you think? You know, I, I've never worked in commercial media, so I, I'm sure they can. I mean, audience engagement works anywhere. I, I'm, I've always worked in the public sector. I work for the federal government right now as my day job. I'm deeply committed to working in the public sector, so I, I'm sure that, public. Uh, you know, this is, in, audience engagement is not something new either like none of the ideas that i mentioned in this report 
are, are new. They've all kind of been cobbled together either from other industries or what we're doing. Um, but I'm more focused on the public. Okay. Did you want to start wrapping up? Yeah, I don't know. What is there anything that we haven't asked you that you think we should have? I didn't even look. Uh, at anything about anything on your mind about journalism lately that this kind of got you thinking that you're sort of intrigued about? Um. Well, I mean, if I would love to come back to public media at some point, I would like to run like an R and D lab for public media. I think we need to think about ways that we can rapidly prototype. I think we need to think about if something works in a rural market. It, there's a good chance that it could work in every rural market, but that doesn't necessarily mean it'll work in an urban market. So I think we need to stop thinking about size as much as the community we're serving and the type of community we're serving. Um, and also, I think that in journalism, you know, I've seen a lot of collaborations take place, but there are a few good ways to surface how we're collaborating with code. Um, I know that Source, which is the Knight Open News Mozilla platform, lists a series of um, code repositories that journalists can share. Uh, but there, I think there are stronger ways that we can articulate how people can use our code, what people can do with our code, how the public can help us make that code better. Um, and that's true, I guess, whether it's code or a story or a product that you're developing or whatever it is. So I, I'm very interested in collaboration and thinking about better ways to structure our stories so they can be surfaced um, and in uh, raising up people in newsrooms who might feel isolated. Mally, thanks for coming in. This has been really great. Uh, I, I read the report. I really enjoy the report. I read your uh, your weekly column and, and I recommend everybody do that. Uh, where can they find your, uh, your column? My weekly column is on Pointer. I also write um, a tiny letter newsletter, which is tinyletter.com slash Melody Kramer. And I'll throw an idea out to my readers. And I think there's like 2,500 to 3,000 readers now. Um, and then people write back with their suggestions and then I throw it back out to them. So we've tackled why local news is important. We've tackled a better way to write a job description. We've tackled how to make a better address book for Google. Um, I'm really a big believer in people from different fields coming together to think about something is really important. One other thing I'll say about journalism is I've gone to a lot of journalism conferences um, and we talk about the same thing and it's the same people. Uh, but I went to a library conference, and that's really interesting because they deal with a lot of the same issues, and we're never talking to librarians. So um, there are different fields that we could build off of, and I, I think a lot about that. Um, yeah, but tiny letter. I'm M. Kramer on Twitter. I probably tweet too, too much, but I tweet everything I learn along the way. This week's It's All Journalism podcast was produced by Emily Kopp, Michael O'Connell, and Amber Healy. It's All Journalism is a weekly podcast focused on the changing state of digital news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and SoundCloud. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.